What does your story say? Welcome to episode 407 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Nancy, Brenda, Amiri, Marcy, Maureen, Karen, and Meredith. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Nancy, Brenda, Amiri, Marcy, Maureen, Karan, and Meredith for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today. About a year ago, I gave a talk at the Greeley AA Stampede Conference, which is in Greeley, Colorado. This is that talk, and you will be hearing it uncut, unedited. This is raw Spencer ums, ers, and all. I'm, my name is Spencer, and I am a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Al-Teen, although I didn't discover it when I was a teenager. Um, Hi, Spencer. Hi, Spencer. And uh, I'm supposed to... Uh, Tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, I guess. I used to think that my Al-Anon story started on a Wednesday afternoon in a treatment center. When I was sitting there at Friends and Family Day, because I was a good codependent, and I came when they told me I should come. Um, And that afternoon, this was not my first time at a Friends and Family gathering either, because my loved one who is the alcoholic, whose alcoholic behavior and drinking eventually brought me to Al-Anon, she had been to several outpatient programs before this was her first inpatient program, but that's her story. For me, this was the day that my life changed. Because I was sitting in that room, a bunch of chairs, low ceiling, kind of dark in the basement of a hospital somewhere. And the guy that was talking to us, and I don't know what he was talking about now. All I remember was when he said, you did not cause the alcoholism. You cannot cure it. And you cannot even control it. That sounds kind of discouraging, maybe, because I'd been spending a lot of time trying to do exactly that and and worrying about whether I had something to do with the, the cause, although I was pretty clear on that one. But instead, what I felt was this weight come off of me, the weight of this task of trying to fix somebody else's alcoholism. I had permission to stop doing that. And I felt physically lighter. And I know now that in that moment, 
I accepted the truth of the first step. Now, intellectually, of course, it took a lot longer. Okay, so that, I thought, was the beginning of my story. You know, well, that's what happened. Um, But when I started to look back at my life, when I started to do the inventory that our steps have us do, I saw that all of the serious relationships that I had had in my life were with somebody who needed fixing. Okay? That's my addiction. I am addicted to fixing people. Okay? It's not a substance. It's not so visible. The effects are not so visible, and it's, you can't tell when I'm picking it up. Um, I was sitting in an Al-Anon meeting once after I'd been in a program for a few years, and, and uh, people were sharing about what was going on in their life. And, you know, and when it came around to me, I said, I just know that I need to be here because I want to help every single one of you. Okay. So when I look back and say, okay, I'm a fixer, how far back does that actually go? Well, it goes back to my mother. Okay, my mother was a classic codependent. Uh, My mother couldn't be happy, couldn't settle until everybody else was okay. Okay? Some of you might identify with that feeling. I certainly identify with that feeling. If, if, you know, if you ask me how I felt, I'd have to look around and see how everybody else in the room felt first. Um, what do you like? I don't know. What do you like? What's your favorite color? You can tell what my favorite color is now, okay? Um, and, I, you know, when I was a kid, I knew that. But as I grew up and I got socialized... I grew away from purple because maybe you don't like purple. And if I'm like really out there being purple, 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 I'm going to offend you. You're not going to like me. Well, that's bottom line, isn't it? You got to like me. Um, so it was not probably a surprise that. In my second marriage, I married an alcoholic. We didn't, either of us, know it at the time. Um, you know, I can look back and see some signs like, okay, she's a, a poor grad student on a, on a stipend, and she's always got a rack of wine bottles in the kitchen. Okay? Um, yeah, but that's normal. Like, you know, people have wine bottles. Like, I grew up appreciating wine. Unfortunately, I don't anymore because... The side effects of her alcoholism really turned me off to it. But, you know, that's, that's another story. Um, <clears throat> it did not become obvious. Well, no, let me, let me rephrase that. Her disease, as did mine, developed over the years. Um, and some, there were events that, maybe gave it another jump every now and then, like having children. Um, Children cause stress. Did you know that? 
especially when you have two the same age and they're like two years old um, and <clears throat> excuse me and it just seems like there's not enough time and not enough energy for anything um, she identifies that point as when she feels she well she said I drank alcoholically as a teenager but that's when it really kicked in and, and I can't disagree with that statement what I thought was she just needed to cut back she just needed to drink normally whatever the hell that is um, and I didn't understand why she couldn't and of course I tried to make that happen and as most of you probably understand that didn't work it absolutely didn't work. And there were a few times when I managed to make it so that there was no alcohol available. Let's just say that the outcome was not pleasant for any of us. Okay. Um, yeah. But what, I, what happened to me was I got angry. I was full of bottled up anger that came out came out as rage. And it came out, it didn't come out on her. Like that somehow wasn't emotionally safe. I couldn't rage at the cause of my anger. Um, I'm the cause of my anger, just that's, you know, uh, the, the TLDR of it. But I couldn't be angry at her. So it came out on my children, um, you know, I, I, I have this picture in my head, and I know this happened more than once. We're at the dinner table, and one of the kids spills something. And I scream, and I pound my fist on the table, which maybe knocks over another glass full of something, making me more angry and more screaming and more pounding. Many years later... I was talking to one of my children about this part of my ninth step process. And he said, I hated it. I hated it when you did that. I would go into another room and I would curl up. And I would know that in a little while I'd have my daddy back. That's the, that's the damage that I did. That's the damage that my disease of wanting to fix and wanting to control did to my children. I would yell at my coworkers. I would, of course, scream at other drivers, but, you know, they didn't care. Um, I almost, I, I swear I would have, probably lost my job if I had not found Al-Anon because my, that same year my boss told me, I think you need to go to anger management. Um, because I would get angry and I would you know, lash out vocally and then I would get called into the office and I would say I'm sorry I'm sorry I won't do it again. That didn't work either, by the way. 
Um, I couldn't sleep at night. I would wake up at three in the morning and my stomach would be churning and, and I would be visualizing all of the horrible things that were going to happen. Um, you know, we were going to lose our house and we'd be living under a bridge somewhere. Um, it just, my life was unmanageable. And when I went to an earlier friends and family day and they said, you know, there's this thing called Al-Anon. It's for the, the friends and relatives of alcoholics and, and you might benefit from going there. My thought was, I'm not the problem here. She's the problem. And if she would just get her act together, everything would be fine. Yeah. Spoiler alert, that's not true either. <laughs> so I knew about Al-Anon several years before I came, but I never thought that I needed it. So that day when I heard what we affectionately call the three C's, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. I also picked up this little <clears throat> you know, flyer, little half a sheet of paper, and at the top it says something like, are you affected by somebody else's drinking? And then it's got 20 questions. Okay, have you ever done this? Has this ever happened? Um, I don't remember what they all were, but I answered yes to 16 of the 20 questions. I answered maybe to one of them. And, and three of them I was pretty sure had never happened. We'd never had the police come to our house, for example, okay? Um, nobody had ever been arrested until my son was 19, but that's a different story. Um, and then at the bottom was the kicker. It said, if you answered yes to at least one of these questions, you may benefit from going to Al-Anon. Okay, I was a math major in, high school, in college, and I was pretty sure that 16 was more than one. So I, at the end of the day, at the, at the treatment center, I got in the car to go home. I'm on the highway going back home, and I called a friend of mine who I knew was an AA because we used to drink together, and then he stopped. Um, and I said to him, do you know anything about Al-Anon? And he said, yes. He said, there's a really good meeting. It's right around the corner from my house. It's tonight. I will take you and introduce you to some people. Do you want to go? And I said, I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> 30 seconds later, I called him back and said yes. So I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting that night, and of course the first person I saw was the wife of a friend of mine. And she looked at me and she said, it's not him. <laughs> yeah, that's how we are. Um, second meeting, I saw a woman who worked at my kid's school, and I thought, oh my God, she's going to know. I didn't even think about the fact that we were all there for the same reason. We were all there because we loved and had been deeply affected by somebody else's alcoholism. Okay? Because at that point, I was so full of shame. I, before I came to Elena, I could not talk to anybody about what was happening in my life. 
about what was happening in my house, about what was happening in my family. I couldn't talk to friends. I couldn't talk to my family. I just couldn't. Um, interesting side note there. Um, I have an uncle. Well, I had an uncle. He's gone now. But at that time, I had an uncle who had some years in AA. Um, and we went to his son's wedding. And his son was also now sober at that point, although I didn't know that at this time. I didn't know either of them, I think, at that point. Um, and... And my wife was deep into her alcoholism or alcoholic drinking at that point. And my uncle went to my mother <laughs> and said, we need to do something about her. Okay, I didn't hear about this till later. Nobody came to me. Like, you know, so even though it was obvious, I couldn't admit it. Because, and I don't know exactly why. It, because Partly because of the mental image I had of alcoholism. Um, as a moral failing. No, that's not true anymore. Thank God. Um, and partly because I couldn't fix it. I'm a man. I'm supposed to be able to fix anything. I can fix a leaky faucet. I can fix a flat tire. I used to be able to tune my car until they put all those electronics in it. But I couldn't fix the drinking. <sighs> Damn. Damn. So, yeah, so I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting, and I sat near the door, because just in case I needed to escape, you know. Um, I don't remember the details of what anyone said that night. I do know that I spoke very briefly, and I cried, which continued for several more weeks. Um, but at the end of that hour... What I knew was I was no longer alone. That there was at least 20 people in that room who understood what was happening and they didn't judge me for it. But I was not alone anymore and that was huge. A couple people gave me phone numbers. I didn't call them, of course. Um, but I came back, and, and just knowing that I wasn't alone anymore was enough to get me to come back. You know, I didn't care about 12 steps. I didn't care about whatever, but I wasn't alone, so I came back. And as I came back, I started to feel a little better. I started, um, and, and, and things that, you know, things happen gradually for me, and so I don't see them happening, and so I have to have, like, an event, um, and a couple months, well, probably more than a couple months in, some, at some point in there, I realized that I was no longer screaming at my kids and I was no longer yelling at my coworkers. Okay? That was a miracle. That was not something I could have done for myself. No human power could have removed my rage. Okay? And I think that was along about the time I was working, like step two. Hmm. Or maybe step three, but, but definitely in there. Um, but I started to hear the message. I started to see that there were people who were living with situations as bad or worse. But they were maybe happy. They weren't, certainly weren't all tied up in knots like I was. 
Uh, and I wanted to get, I wanted that. I wanted to have that. Um, and so I said, how, how do you do this? How did this happen for you? And, and what I heard, and I know everybody in a meeting hears things differently at different times, but what I heard was four simple steps. Go to meetings, read the literature, get a sponsor, work the steps. Okay, I was already going to meetings. I already had at least one piece of literature, and, and actually a neighbor of mine, bless her, um, gave me her copy of One Day at a Time in Al-Anon. Um, and so I had, two, I had two books. I had the One Day at a Time reader, and I had the, our blue book, How Al-Anon Works. Um, and if you haven't looked at that book, probably half of you at least haven't. Um, the front is all is, is kind of like the, it's like the big book, actually. The front is, here's the program. The back is stories. I could pick that book up. I, when, I, you know, I, I, when I talk to newcomers, I say, don't read that book through from start to finish. I mean, read it. But, and maybe you read the front part from start to finish. But the back part, dip in there right away. Start dipping in there. Look at those stories. Find people in those stories that you identify with. Find people in those stories who overcame something that you're struggling with. Because that simple process of reading a short story enabled me to go to sleep, gave me a little bit of serenity. I didn't know what serenity felt like at the time, but, but now I can look back and say, yeah, it did. Um, so I had the literature. Um, I need a sponsor. Okay, will you be my sponsor? I mean, that's exactly how. This was a person that I felt like what they said in meetings I could really relate to. They were in a similar situation, married to a, an alcoholic. Their alcoholic was sober. Mine wasn't. So, you know, maybe they did something right, and I want to know what it was. Um, yeah, I was still hoping. Um, so I said, will you be my sponsor? Okay. Um, I did not use my sponsor very effectively, I will say that, um, because then there's this work the steps part. And what happened was that a group of eight of us got together and made a commitment to each other to meet once a week to work through another one of our Al-Anon books, which is a, a, a study book for the steps, actually, in the traditions and the concepts, but we were focusing on the steps. And each chapter for a step has a bunch of questions at the end, and we committed to answer those questions, come and meet weekly, and talk about the answers we had found to those questions. It took us over two years to get all the way through to 12 steps doing that. Um, but what that did for me was at least two things. I always say, you know, it did two things, and then I list off about three or four, but um, at least two things. It gave me accountability. Because every week on Monday, I think it was Monday, I was in a room in the Alano Club with these seven other people and if I hadn't figured out my answers to those questions and written them down before I got there, then, you know, I would feel judged. I'm sure they weren't judging me because, you know, we're all like in recovery, right? Um, so that, but also, especially when we got to some of the hard questions, the really dig in a little bit questions, I got to see that I was not 
uniquely broken. That we were all human, and each one of us had faults, and each one of us had strengths. Um, And that the faults that I was most ashamed of were also there in other people. It wasn't that I was a horrible person. It's just that I was human, and I was struggling with life like we all do. Um, Along in there... My wife went into a residential treatment program, came out, um, and had what I thought was nine months of sobriety. It was actually eight. Um, And when I finally discovered the wine bottles in her closet um, and confronted her and said, you are going back to that treatment center for another month. And she did. Um, I had a little kind of a relapse with that. Like, I'm taking control here because you effed up. Um, So she went back to treatment. She came out at the end of a month and drank that night. That was the nail in the coffin of my attempts to control her drinking. It was very clear that after spending several thousand dollars on a month's worth of residential treatment, that wasn't the answer. And I couldn't make it happen. Um, So I came into Al-Anon with a big question. And the question was, can I stay married to this woman? Because I could not envision continuing to live in the chaos that alcoholism was making of our lives. But I also could not envision not being married to her. And those were the only two possibilities that were in my head at that point. I couldn't see a third possibility. So it's like, I don't want that, and I don't want that. Luckily, I heard in the rooms, if you don't know the answer to a question you're facing, and you're not in danger, wait. As we sometimes put it, don't just stand there. Don't just do something. Sit there. Okay, so I did. And every now and then, she would ask me out of her fear, are those Al-Anon people telling you to leave me? I'll tell you, no, okay? That's not what we do. And if you're in a meeting where they're telling you to leave, and it's not what you want to do, or you're not sure, find a different meeting. Because that's not a healthy meeting where people are telling you what to do. I, had, I went to one of those meetings, and I never went back after the guy turned to me and said, well, what you need to do is, with the Al-Anon salute, <laughs> okay? Never went back to that meeting. Um, so I had this, I just didn't know the answer to this question. Um, and what happened was that through this process of going to meetings, reading the literature, getting a sponsor, and doing the steps, I got, number one, I got serenity. And, and the ironic thing is that I first noticed that I had, had a day where I was serene all day. I wasn't angry all day. I wasn't in fear all day. I wasn't despairing all day. I wasn't, you know, was after my wife relapsed. And we were back in active drinking. And I had a day full of serenity. 
And I didn't recognize it until somebody after a meeting said, how are you doing, Spencer? How are you? And I said, I think I, think I know what serenity feels like. Okay? Serenity is not everything around me is calm. Serenity is I am calm, even though I'm in the middle of the hurricane. Okay? Serenity is an internal job. It's an inside job. It's not something that that the universe gives to me. It's something I found for myself. And how do I explain that? I can't explain that except that I have a higher power, and that power wants the best for me and is guiding me in ways that give me a new way to live. Okay, so that was about a year in. About two years in, my wife's still drinking. One, one night, she's passed out on the bed, and I looked at her, and I heard this voice in my head. Okay, danger sign, voice in my head. Um, I don't think it was mine. And this voice said, there lies the woman that you love. She is in the grips of a horrible disease that makes her act in ways you detest. But she is still in there. And I realized I still loved her deeply. And that Al-Anon had given me a third route, a third answer, which is that I, I was able to keep my serenity, my, my peace, and let her follow the path that she needed to follow. And I didn't know what the end of that path was, okay? You have to be clear on that. The end of that path could have been death if she kept drinking. Um, because her story involves losing a job and, and, and you know, everything that comes with that um, and having nothing to do but sit home and drink all day. Um, and that, you know, I didn't like that, okay? But I knew I couldn't fix it. Um, I had to be there and be a support. Um, that's what I could do. And the morning when she woke up and said, I don't want to drink today, and I don't want to drink tomorrow, can you help me get all the alcohol out of the house? Then I said yes. Okay. The days of throwing away bottles were long past, but when she asked me to, I said yes. Um, and she celebrated 17 years of sobriety last September. Um, now, sobriety did not fix all our problems. It gave us new problems. Um, I'll say it gave me new problems. I can't speak for her, but I'm pretty sure. Um, because as she woke up, as she, you know, her brain started to work better, um, since it wasn't depressed by alcohol all the time. She wanted to have some say in how things worked. <laughs> you know? I'd been running the damn family for, you know, a decade with no interference. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And um, addiction is a slippery bastard. Um, you know, she, she got herself free from alcohol, but there's lots of other things to get addicted around. Um, ice cream, shopping. Um, and, and so I had to learn how to not enable those things and how to not get angry about those things and, you know, and to let her find her own path through those things. And also, we had children. Remember I talked about we had children? These children are growing up. These children are becoming teenagers. Um, the same year I came to al I also went back to the church of my childhood. Um, I had turned 18 in that church and had no idea what it meant to be an adult in the church. I saw no value in it for me, what the adults were doing. I had no idea what the adults were doing, but I was pretty sure there was no value for it. Um, and so I went away for almost 30 years. Um, I used to say I was a relapsed Unitarian. Um, yeah. Um, I came back in 2002. I came to Ellen and I came back to the church, and, and I immediately recognized that there was something there that I needed that I hadn't known that I needed. And it feeds my soul in a different way than Al-Anon feeds my spirit. Um, and I discovered when my children turned 13 and I was like, oh my God, I have teenagers. I discovered I like teenagers. I do. They're fascinating and exciting and, yeah, frustrating and annoying. Um, I like teenagers. And so... I started working with the teens at my church, with the high school youth at my church. Um, that's a whole other story. I can't go very far with that. But just to say, they gave me joy, and I gave them back acceptance and understanding. Um, and an adult who didn't judge them, who could just be there for them, which I believe most teenagers need an adult who is not their parents, who can be a mentor, who can be a guide, who can be a listener. So if you ever think about doing that, that's God's work. Um, and my kids grew up, and they weren't so interested in that, which is fine. Uh, and they went off to college. Actually, before that, so our son, who has always been the one who has to forge his own path and has to learn things his own way, um, he'd been getting the lecture for a decade about the propensity of his genetics towards addiction. So when he wanted to experiment with drugs, he looked around, he read, you know, read up on him. Google is a wonderful thing, right? Um, and, and he discovered that LSD is not addictive. <laughs> so that was his first drug. Well, actually, cigarettes were his first drug, but that was his second. And, 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 and we're like, could you possibly consider not doing that while you're living at home? And he said, no. You know, and he had his rounds with the addictionists and so on, and, and I think that accomplished absolutely nothing, um, except to, you know, drain our bank account a little bit more. Um, he went off to college. Um, 
I got a bill from an ambulance company in Tempe, Arizona. Um, and I called him up. I said, what's this about? He said, oh, I was hoping, uh, hoping you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know about find out about that. Um, I said, well, you know, <laughs> don't run up a bill like that. Um, yeah, he took mushrooms and he got so crazy that his friends called the cops on him, okay? Um, I said, what have you learned from this? Did you learn something? Please, please, I hope you learned something. He said, yeah, me and shrooms don't get along. <laughs> ah, hey, the next year, um, he had some kind of a break. Um, he ended up uh, in a locked ward as a danger to self or others, um, banned from campus. Uh, and I had to go rescue him. No, I had to be there to get him out of the hospital because they would not let him out on his own because he would have been out on the street because he couldn't go back on campus. Um, and they, they wouldn't do that. And so I went to my Al-Anon, my, my, my home group, the night before I was going to get on a plane to fly down to Arizona, and I said, I don't know what to do. My son's in the psych ward, and I don't know what to If it was a rehab, I think I'd know what to do, but I don't know what to do. I was wrong. I was wrong. I knew what to do. What I needed to do was to do for him the things he could not do for himself. I needed to provide him a place to live. I needed to provide him with food, and I needed to provide him with transportation. He needed to get himself readmitted to school. He needed to find a new place to live because, oh, um, his ex-girlfriend had taken out a restraining order on him, and since they lived in the same dorm, he couldn't live there anymore. Um, he needed to deal with the consequences of his actions while I made it possible for him to do that. I was there to support, not to fix. And I learned that in the rooms of Al-Anon. I could not have done that without that, without that help. I just couldn't have. Um, I was there for a week, and at the end of the week, this is the son who was, no, I'm going to do my LSD, and I'm going to do my shrooms, and you can't stop me. Um, and when he went off to college, we were not speaking, basically. I mean, you know, we were speaking about the things we needed to speak about, but that was it. Um, he was very oppositional. Um, I dropped him off at the airport and drove away. Said, have a good time at college, see ya. Okay, not quite. I actually circled around and went in to make sure he got through security. But, <laughs> but he didn't know that, okay? As far as he was concerned, it was like, push the bird out of the nest and see if he can fly. Um, this kid, at the end of that week, turned to me, and he gave me a big hug, and he said, thank you for coming. I don't know what I would have done without you. All right, a little bit more. Um, I'm going to jump forward a bunch of years here uh, to the next, not the next place, but the place where recently I have had to use my Al-Anon program on a daily basis for several years, which is when my parents' health was failing, and they were both moving deeper and deeper into dementia, um, which only has one end point. There is no recovery from this disease. Um, and I would go to visit them, and I would get triggered by their behavior because the behavior of someone with dementia 
can look very much from the outside like the behavior of somebody who's been drinking. And those little buttons, they were still there in my psyche. And so when my mother would repeat the same thing every five minutes, that, would, that button would get triggered. I would go to an Ellen. Every time we visited, Friday noon was our Al-Anon meeting. Both of us would go, even, even my wife who doesn't go to Al-Anon. Um, we would go to that Friday noon Al-Anon meeting because I needed this program. I needed to be able to accept them as they were, to love them as they were, not who they used to be, not who I wanted them to be, but as they were because it wasn't going to get better. It wasn't going to go away. Um, and there was one summer where I avoided going to visit because I just couldn't face it. Except then my kid wanted to go to grad school in Connecticut, so I drove him to Connecticut, and the route back from going to Connecticut to, to Michigan goes right past where my parents live. So I had to stop. Um, and we went out to dinner I met them at this at this restaurant near them, which is one of their favorite restaurants. And I went in and and uh, I said, uh, you know, I'm meeting my parents here. I think I might be a little early. And and she looked at me and she said, "Oh, you're Woody and Marilyn's boy." I'm like, "Yes, that's me." Um, and when my mother came and they had to put out the ramp to get her with her walker up the steps into this old house where the restaurant was and where all of the patrons of the restaurant had to move apart so that she could get through very slowly with her walker. Um, And when she forgot what she had ordered for dinner when the dinner came, I had spent the day on the phone with Al-Anon friends. I had listened to a whole CD about radical acceptance And I was able to accept her for who she was and to see the love that was given to her by total strangers when I was having trouble loving her because she wasn't the mother that I grew up with anymore. And that was a good visit. That was a good visit. My parents both died in 2021. Um, My father died in February. My mother died in December. They both died at home with their family around them. Um, And that's a gift. That's a gift. Um, And I recognized, again, this, this, this program of understanding and knowing myself. Step four, I was... Deathly afraid of step four inventory. And then step five, like telling somebody else, oh, my God, no. Um, You know, my worst favorite day at work was always the um, annual review. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. I've gotten better about that. Step four has so much power in it for me to be able to see what moves me, what my strengths are. And I, you know... I realized when when my parents died, I realized that I had been grieving them for years. I'd been grieving the loss of the parents that I knew. And I was able to feel that grief and let that out. I didn't have to hold it in, you know. It's a gift. It's a gift. Um, 
So what I found in this program was not just mere recovery from somebody else's alcoholism. It was not just being able to live with it. No, what I found was a completely new way of living. I found a person that I had never been um, and that I am still becoming. I like the person that I am a whole lot better now. Um, People tell me they find my voice soothing and they can't imagine me being angry and screaming. Okay? That's a gift of this program. Because as I said, no human power could have relieved that. Um, But somehow, this higher power, and I didn't talk much about higher power because I don't know what my higher power is. I don't have a vision of a higher power, but I know that I have one. And that when I'm willing to listen and be open and honest, there we go, there's the how, um, my life gets better. And that's, and, and you know, I have to keep coming to meetings for me and for everybody else at the meeting, but for me, because I most often hear my higher power's voice from somebody else. If I come into a meeting and I open myself up to receive what is there, or if I pick up a, a piece of literature and I open myself up to receive what is there, I hear my higher power's voice. Um, a friend of mine says, you know, my higher power is always talking to me, but in a meeting I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know where to end this except to say, again, I have gotten such a gift from these 12 steps and from all y'all. Even if I don't know you, I got something from you. So thank you for being here. Um, And uh, God bless. I picked a couple of songs to go in this episode. The first one represents where I was before I came into Al-Anon. The song is called Fix You. It's by Coldplay. You can listen to it on the website at therecovery.show slash 407. Definitely have used this one before. It really speaks to me about my codependent behavior and my need to fix my loved ones. The refrain that's at the end of each chorus and I will try to fix you is the key here. And I certainly had to learn that I can't do that. Got some emails and voicemails from you. I'll start with an email from Anthony who writes, Hi, Spencer and the team. As an Al-Anon member for about 14 years, I have so much enjoyed and benefited from listening to your podcast. I mostly prefer face-to-face meetings. However, your shore has helped fill in the gaps when I need to hear some recovery. Recently, I experienced a moving moment and thought I'd like to share with you and your listeners a little of my story from here in Australia. 
Keep up the fantastic work, Anthony in Melbourne, Australia. And here's the story that he sent. This morning, I had to drop off some rental equipment in Port Melbourne. On the way back, something told me to stop at Station Pier, where the spirit of Tasmania Ferry used to depart from. This was the last place that I saw my wife Amanda alive as she boarded the spirit to go to Devonport. At the time, it seemed like a good chance for her to change scenery and work on her recovery from alcoholism. She was going to be living with the spiritual community over there and had packed everything of value into her small Hyundai, leaving most of her furniture, spare clothes, and other stuff on the pavement outside the house she had been renting in the year or so since we separated. Amanda had asked me to help her get to the ferry because she had got lost and confused in the last attempt she had made a week previously. I think she was hoping I would relent and ask her to come back to live with us. However, after our last attempt to make it work, where she came for a few days, got very drunk, and had to leave again, I was very careful to not let the conversation lead to directions where I would be tempted to, quote, rescue her again. Despite my constant changing of the conversation topic, it was lovely to spend time with Amanda as we walked in the sunny weather along the beach and shops area and waited for the ferry boarding to open. I was inwardly glad she was going far away so we wouldn't be bothered so much by her antics as she struggled with the disease. However, I was very, very sad to see her depart. I can feel even now the warmth of our last hug and kiss. I caught the tram home in a daze. I didn't realize that this would be the last time I would see her face to face and had no idea how crazy things would get for her in Tasmania. The spiritual community called me in desperation after only a few weeks, asking me to take her back. I needed to use every ounce of my program to keep the conversation civil, whilst firmly stating that Amanda would have to sort things out for herself. Eventually, after a few twists, turns, and injuries, Amanda returned to Melbourne and ended up living in a share house with some dubious characters. A week or so later, her body was discovered in her Hyundai. The coroner's examination found a high level of alcohol and death due to respiratory failure. I still have to catch myself from believing that I could have intervened and somehow prevented the situation that led up to her dying alone in a car in a public car park. I am glad I have Al-Anon to help me see things from a more realistic perspective. As I retraced our steps and ended up on the little viewing pier near the main ferry terminal, there were two huge cruise ships docked, but the thing that caught my attention most was something I had not noticed when Amanda and I were in the same spot. All along the edge of the pier were little memorial plates screwed to the decking of the pier with names and dates of people remembered by loved ones. I spent a long time reading them all. Some looked very old, some were fancy, some plain. Others were just scratched into the wooden railings or even scrawled in felt-tip pen. I felt very moved and cried a little as I reflected that it was not only me who thought this place special for those no longer with us. It helped me to grieve a little more without feeling so much of an outsider. Later, I went for a longer walk along the beach and ended up on the other small pier after the yacht club where some people were fishing. I spent a few minutes admiring the panorama and made my way back. As I was turning to begin the walk back from the end of the pier, I noticed a young lady walking with a bunch of flowers in her hands. We briefly exchanged wistful smiles, and I continued back towards the shore. Something made me stop halfway and look back. I saw her sit down on the end of the pier. God, this is getting to me. 
I saw her sit down on the end of the pier and carefully drop the flowers one by one into the water. I wondered what her story was and felt somehow validated that I was not the only one to be grieving and that making these gestures and memory-evoking trips was something others did too. I'm so glad I followed my heart and didn't just drive straight home. I will forever be grateful for this memory and even more so for this wonderful program that continues to help me to navigate and find meaning in the difficult and tragic journey of living with alcoholism. Thank you for sharing that, Anthony. Um, as you can tell when you listen, it it had an effect on me, too. Very beautiful and sad. Thank you. Pat left a voicemail about sponsorship. Hey, Spencer, this is Pat from the West Coast. Gosh, it's been a while because for some reason I lost my podcast feed. So what a joy it was to all of a sudden find I was behind four or five and I got to listen to a bunch in a row. Of course, now I have lots of thoughts. But the one that's really been kind of weighing on my mind where I feel like I I want to put something out there for the community, just in terms of my responses and reactions, is regarding making requirements for our sponsees when we agree to sponsor them. I agreed with your most recent guest about, look, if we make an arrangement to meet at a particular time, it is simply respectful to let me know if you're not going to be able to meet it. That seems like a very reasonable boundary. But I I am personally not comfortable saying you will go to a meeting every week. You will do X, Y, and Z. You will do one step per month. You will do whatever. I don't know. You spoke of there being expectations and parameters put around sponsoring. I think I fall on the side of our literature that talks about us being where we are supposed to be at the time that we're there and that we proceed at our own pace. And I make suggestions to my sponsees. I don't have a lot of them, but I feel it's important for me to continue to recommend program actions that we always recommend meetings and daily reading of literature, etc. I will say if I think a sponsor-sponsee relationship isn't working, I will say maybe this isn't the right time for you to be working with a sponsor or it seems like you're not able to put the effort in. It just seems like I am not the right person and I've had Sponsees become Al-Anon friends, become sponsees again. That's had sponsors become co-sponsors with me. But I guess I'm just a little more flexible and I'm really hesitant to draw some line in the sand that my sponsee has to perform to or else I'm going to stop being with them or helping them or working with them. That just doesn't seem right. I don't know. Those are some thoughts. It's been bugging me. I don't have my arms completely wrapped around the whole concept, but I thought I'd put it out there. Thank you for your time. And as always, I'm so grateful to everybody who contributes to your show and to all the energy and effort and investment it's taken from you over the years. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Pat. And I think I will let your voice stand alone. Ashley writes, Hi, Spencer and Recovery Show family. I'm looking for the group's feedback and their experience, strength, and hope on sponsoring between genders, i.e. women sponsoring men or other genders or vice versa. My own group has been historically female-dominated. 
Recently, we have had an influx of men arrive, and I was curious to hear listener feedback on how they were able to support newcomers of a different gender than the majority. I have heard a number of opinions about this from people in speaker tapes, I think from people who have been on the podcast. Some are pretty clear that they're not going to sponsor outside their own gender. And on the other hand, I've heard some people say, I sponsor people. My experience is that I have sponsored a couple of people who are women. My original sponsor was a woman. And there was one woman in program that I probably shouldn't have even thought about it because I was too attracted. And I think that's the issue. Speaking personally, if I'm going to find myself personally attracted to somebody, then I probably shouldn't be sponsoring them. This question gets more interesting when you say, what about people who are gay or bi or where do you draw that line? And I think the answer is that you need to be able to keep the relationship professional, if you will. I think really think it depends on how you feel you might feel. I think it works for some people and it doesn't work for some people. And it's good to know yourself well enough to know, to be able to answer that question. Is this going to work for me or am I going to get personally entangled with emotions? In which case I should say no. Ashley continues with a, a separate topic. Spencer, in an episode you mentioned listening to program speakers via MP3, where do you access those recordings? You also mentioned ACA podcasts you have been listening to. Can you please share which shows those are? I have graduated from Al-Anon to ACA in recent years, and I'd like to listen to relevant podcasts. Thank you, Ashley from Alberta. There's a website, xa-speakers.org, which has speakers from many different programs. It has lots and lots of files that you can download and listen to. I also listen to Recovery Radio Network, which is available as a podcast, or you can go to the website and and listen to individual uh, programs there. Recovery Radio Network is in the sidebar on the Recovery Show website. Under Podcasts We Like, if you're on a phone or a tablet, the so-called sidebar is actually all the way at the bottom. If you're on a, a laptop or desktop computer, it's going to be on the right-hand side of the screen. Just scroll down a bit to Podcasts We Like. And XA Speakers is also linked in the sidebar uh, under Websites We Like. So there's a couple of sources. I'm sure there are others. Also listed under Podcasts We Like are two um, adult-child-themed-slash-oriented podcasts. One is called Adult Child, and the other is called Fragmented to Whole. And I think I talked a little more about these both in the last episode. Um, I will also put those links directly in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 407. Ruth writes... Even though I've been in Al-Anon since 2009, I just recently found out about your podcast. While I typically attend three meetings per week, I have found that your podcast has really boosted my recovery in a positive way. Especially at night, if I'm having difficulty sleeping, I will put on a podcast to keep my brain from going down negative rabbit holes. Your podcast keeps me focused on the solution rather than the problem. Parenthesis S. 
I find your podcast very comforting and really appreciate the format. I'm up to episode 33 as I write this, so I have plenty more to keep me going. I wanted to recommend some additional books for your website listing. Uh, in conference-approved literature, the book As We Understood, which, yeah, I don't have a link to that. And non-conference-approved literature, Ruth lists several. Drop the Rock, Removing Character Defects, Steps 6 and 7. Uh, and I've heard a lot about that book. I have not read it myself. I think my wife has gone and worked through it at least once. Another book, A Gentle Path Through the Twelve Steps, which is the classic guide for all people in the process of recovery. Self-Compassion, Embracing Your Life with the Heart of a Buddha. Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. I have actually listened to that one on CD. The Dance of Anger, A Woman's Guide to Changing the Patterns of Intimate Relationships, and most any book by Dr. Gabor Mate, but especially In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and the Myth of Normal. So I will work to get those into the website uh, in the next week or so. Ruth says, In Wellness and with Gratitude, Ruth Parenthesis, a different one from the one in Germany, who we haven't heard from Ruth in Germany for a while, but she helped me do episodes on the traditions, and I was very grateful for that. Amy writes, Hi, Spencer. Just finished listening to this episode and heard the listener who wondered about how the AA program seems focused on helping others while Al-Anon is about being focused on ourselves. I think this is in response to the Listening to You episode number 406. Amy continues, I had just had to share my current experience. I've been in Al-Anon for four years now, and recently I decided to do a step study group that is online via Zoom. This is a 20-week study that works the steps via the AA Big Book. Wow, this has been like a turbo boost to my recovery in such an interesting perspective. It's intense, and I am really enjoying the approach. You even read a passage from the big book about selfishness that has been a big part of our study. I think what I'm learning is that as Alanons, we have the same disease as the alcoholic. We just have different symptoms. And she quotes the slogan, but for the grace of God here. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the history of AA and Alanon, and studying the steps in this way really brings that to life in a meaningful way. It has been a great way to develop compassion for the alcoholic, and I've met some really great people. Anyway, I know that I will be recommending this study group to other Al-Anons. The primary organizer of the group is Jen T. from Ontario, and boy, would she be a great guest to have on your show. We have two 90 minutes a week, must attend at least one each of AA and Al-Anon meetings. There's homework, there's nightly 10-step work, plenty of readings and speaker tapes to listen to. It's a diverse mix of AAs and Al-Anons, and this year's group has over 100 participants. I'm sorry, Amy, to break in here again, but that sounds really intense. Yes. Thank you, Spencer, for being a part of my recovery. I look forward to every episode and feel a kinship with you as you live in my home state. My grandmother was a member of the Detroit area Al-Anon family groups for 40 years. So every time you mention Ann Arbor or Detroit, it's like going home. Thank you, Amy. I don't have a link or whatever to find out how to join that study group. If I find something, I'll put it in the show notes on the website at therecovery.show slash 407. Doreen writes, Hi, Spencer. I'm Doreen from Nova Scotia, Canada. I just wanted to let you know that I enjoy your show. I'm hooked on your podcasts. Today, I'm listening to episode 199. I could identify with the darkness how touching it was for me. 
Something I would like to hear discussion on is principles above personalities and service work. Surely I'm not the only one struggling with members wanting to do everything in Al-Anon. I've read a lot on this subject and it's difficult to practice. Thank you, Doreen. Yeah, we don't talk about service much, and it, it would be a good set of topics to to go to. So if you've got some little or a lot of experience in Al-Anon service and you'd like to co-host an episode on service work, and maybe one of the things we can focus on is how we place principles above personality when we're doing it, let me know. Send an email uh, to feedback at therecovery.show to, to volunteer. Lori asks about Eric. She wanted to find the shows where Eric was a co-host. I wrote back, I said, all of Eric's episodes are tagged with Eric B. If you've been on the website, you may or may not have noticed that there are tags on the episodes to try to pull out the topics that were touched on. And all of the episodes with Eric as a co-host are tagged with Eric B. And there's a couple ways to find them. You can go to the Recovery Show website, scroll down till you see Tag Cloud again in the sidebar, and Eric B. kind of stands out there because we have done a number of episodes. You can go to the Recovery Show website, click on Search in the menu at the top, and then there's a list of tags on the search page, and also Eric B. shows up there, so you click on Eric B. So I hope that helps. Lori wrote back and said, thanks for that. It was helpful. And if you've been wondering the same thing, now you know. Or if you want to find episodes that are tagged with things like serenity or acceptance, if you think an episode may benefit from having a particular tag that I didn't choose for it, let me know and and I can add it. And I think the early episodes are not tagged. So again, some listener support there could be helpful. Thanks. Kimberly writes, Dear Spencer, my name is Kimberly, and I'm writing to tell you what a gift your podcast is and how it has helped me through some of the darkest times of my life since I discovered you. My beautiful husband of 26 years developed alcoholism just in the last four years or so, and the cliche, it rocked my foundations, is incredibly apt. This is the most responsible, reliable, dutiful, literal Eagle Scout I had ever met, and I just couldn't fathom what was happening to him when this started. But perhaps all of those admirable masculine qualities are where the problems began. I believe now that alcoholism was lying in wait for him his whole life, and the perfectly imperfect set of circumstances came together about four years so that he succumbed to this disease. He is not in recovery, but thanks in large part to your podcast, I am. I've learned so much about myself, about compassion, about community, and about choosing happiness through listening to you and your guests. I have especially learned about gratitude, something I practice every day. I am eternally grateful for the work you do. It cannot be overstated how many people you help every day. I don't know if you take music requests, but I just have to share with someone who will understand. As someone who was a young child in the 80s, I had always loved the song Don't Change by NXS. But when I stumbled across the song in an old playlist recently, I really heard it for the first time after hundreds of listens throughout the years. The song is about choosing happiness and joy, about letting go, and about telling a loved one not to change for us as they truly have to change for themselves, or maybe they won't ever change. The opening line says, I'm standing here on the ground, the sky above won't fall down. Something we catastrophizers and awfulizers need to hear. And it just gets better from there. 
The song is my anthem these days, and I find it so precious and helpful that I felt compelled to reach out and share, something my introverted self never does. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you're doing well and have a wonderful weekend. Kimberly. Kimberly, I am going to add that song to the show notes at this episode. So anybody who wants a quick link to get to it, there will be a YouTube video at therecovery.show slash 407. And I also chose a second song um, representing the surrender that brought me to recovery. And the song is Sweet Surrender by Sarah McLaughlin. It's one that I've always liked. A little bit of the lyrics here. I think this is the chorus. And sweet surrender is all that I have to give. Take me in, no questions asked. You strip away the ugliness that surrounds me. Thank you, Elanon. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.